As Aaron says, we're in a series here this morning in our teaching and our times in the Word about knowing God. Uh, I don't think you can get a better topic uh, for a church to study than engaging with what it means to know God. We've come at this infinite topic from a number of different angles, knowing God the Father, knowing God the Son, knowing God the Spirit. There's so many ways you can touch this, and we have been working through some of them. This morning, what we want to look at is the God, knowing the God who has a plan. Everything's not random. There's times when we feel everything seems random and out of control. I think that was Velma's in my week this week. She's not here this morning. She's recovering from a fairly serious back injury. So it's been one of those weeks But behind all the seeming chaos on the ground, if we go to Scripture, we see a God who has a plan. And the plan, if you want to condense it into five words, is all things together under Christ. If you've got those five words tattooed in your brain, you can go out for coffee now because you've already got the whole message in five words. We'll see how many people leave. All things together under Christ. The case could be made. That's the theme of the Bible. Cover to cover. If you step back and see the grand scope, that's what it's all about. So let's see how the whole Bible reveals this glorious plan. Starting naturally enough in Genesis, we could do the whole talk in Genesis, but we'll move beyond that. But a a very important text in Genesis comes right near the end, chapter 49, verse 10. Chapter 49 of Genesis is Jacob prophesying over his 12 sons. It's an intriguing idea. It shows that we all have prophetic destinies, things God wants our lives to count for. And Jacob knew that. And he prophesied one by one over each of his sons. Some of the prophetic words are, shall we say, not entirely complimentary. (laughs) He knew his sons well. But he speaks the truth, and there's something of God in every one of these for these 12 sons of Jacob. When he gets to Judah... He speaks something very significant about Judah, but beyond Judah into Judah's descendants, the the tribe that will arise and descend from Judah. And he sees a king. And Judah is appointed, you read through it's in chapter 49, to be the royal tribe. And out of that tribe will come Israel's kings. Of course, King David is the primary Old Testament example of that. But we know that King David had a famous son, the son of David. And Jacob sees all the way down the prophetic corridor to that famous son, Christ himself. And seeing that king, Jacob says this to him, this single descendant of the tribe of Judah shall be the obedience of the nations. That statement is made of pure dynamite. There's so much in it. And pure gold mixed in. 
To him shall be the obedience of the nations. That, brothers and sisters, is the plan. Psalm 2 picks up on that. Psalm 2 is very messianic. It's about the promised Messiah, a descendant of the David dynasty. And in Psalm 2, God says this, Ask of me, speaking to this messianic king, Ask of me, see, Christ had a prayer life. God told Jesus, I want you to pray for things. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. All things together under Christ. And I will make the ends of the earth your possession. Are we starting to see it? God has a plan. And it's about Christ, and it's about Christ receiving honor. Fast forward now, New Testament. And this episode, we've already heard this morning about Christmas, Christmas in July. Well, I was so glad to hear that because it confirms my talk. Christmas in July, Matthew 2.11 is about the Magi. That's not just a once a year Christmas talk. It's about the plan and purpose of God. Listen to these words and then think back to God's promise through Jacob to the tribe of Judah and the king who will come from the tribe of Judah. To him will be the obedience of the peoples. Peoples, plural, note, plural. The Magi, they came from the nations. They were Gentiles. They had probably come from what today is known as Persia, many miles. And they fell down and worshipped him, this child Christ, this child king of Israel. Then opening their treasures, that's a great little phrase, isn't it? Opening their treasures. Are we doing that? Opening our treasures, our, our tables we can give away. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. You know what? This is an act of worship. It uses the word worship, of course, in verse 11. And then... This is going to become important in a moment. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Herod, hypocritical, deceitful King Herod, looking for nothing more than to cover his own throne, had said, oh, I want you to come back to me when you find this new king, and then I can go and worship him too. (laughs) Well, we know he had a different agenda. And God warned them, don't go back to Herod. This is going to be important in a moment. And they departed to their own country by another way. That's a part of the fulfillment of Genesis 49.10. To him will be the obedience of the nations. In the big picture, these men, I I suppose they remember, we don't really know, we also don't know how many there were. Christmas cards always say three. The Bible never says it was three. The point is, whatever details we may or may not have, they were representing the nations of the earth who are ultimately going to worship Jesus. This is a hugely pivotal moment in the Bible. Paul now, in the, in the epistles, looking back on what God has done through Christ. The Old Testament anticipates him. The Gospels, like Matthew, show us his ministry on the earth. And then the epistles look back on what Christ has done. Ephesians 1.10 looking back on Christ and to the end of the age as well. A plan, Paul says, Ephesians 
for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth. Over into Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pause very briefly on those two verses, the two that we'll look at this morning from the epistles. The verse there we see in Ephesians is something global. The whole world is going to worship Christ. The whole world, says Paul, is going to be gathered and brought in, united to him and united together under him. All things together under Christ. That's our theme. That's the global perspective. Then look at Philippians. Philippians is what is about what God's doing in your own heart. You as an individual. Me as an individual. So God's the God of the planet and he's the God of the individual. He's both. And in both cases it's about the planet and all the stuff in my heart getting brought under the lordship of Jesus, trusting in him and drawing on his life. Does that sound like a plan? That's a good plan. That's God's plan. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Finally, three more verses from that puzzling but glorious final book of the Bible, Revelation. It's the one we like to talk about, but most of us will admit quickly we don't feel like we understand everything we get there. That's okay. Here's three key texts that show this theme, all things together under Christ. Revelation 5, verse 6. The Lamb is represented standing at the center of the throne. When John sees into heaven, it's called the throne room scene. It takes up two entire chapters, chapters 4 and 5. He sees the throne room. The throne room is at the center of heaven. At the center of the throne room, naturally enough, is the throne. And guess where the lamb is. He is standing at the center of the throne. It's like God has gone out of his way to arrange everything so his son is in the middle and then everything else is peripheral to that. You and I are gloriously privileged to stand at the periphery and worship him. What a wonderful thing. But he is at the center. We are not. Later in the same book in Revelation, getting near the end of the book of Revelation and near the end of the Bible, 21-26, This is describing this glorious, renewed city of God. It's called the New Jerusalem. Do you know the first city mentioned in the Bible was founded by a murderer? Genesis 4, his name was Cain. He founded the first city. But God is into cities as well. But his cities are full of life, not full of murder. The city Cain 
founded and it eventually became where they built the Tower of Babel. It rose up from the earth. Let us build a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens and we will make a name for ourselves, the tower builders said in Genesis. Well, at the other end of the Bible, we get an entirely different kind of city and notably, it doesn't rise up from the earth, it comes down out of heaven. That's the last vision God gives John. He says, I saw the heavenly city, the holy city, and here's the key phrase that just sets it apart from every other city. This one was coming down out of heaven. That sounds like where I want to live. That's a different kind of city. Now, when that city descends onto the earth, we're told that it's going to have 12 gates three facing in each of the four directions on the compass, representing welcome and access to people from all over the world. If you come from the north, the east, the south, or the west, it doesn't matter. There are three gates there to welcome you in, and they're never closed. And what will get brought in? People will be coming Kings will be coming. John says, I can see kings, kings of the nations coming. And here's what they do. The kings of the earth will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. It's still coming back. It's still circling back to Jacob's promise over the tribe of Judah and the king who will rise up from the tribe of Judah, King Jesus. To him will be the obedience of the people. You know what this is? This is the Magi on steroids. The Magi, let's say it was three. Whatever exact number. It was a small number. This is millions of people now doing on a global scale what the Magi did. This is, gives new meaning to the word big. The kings of the earth will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. 22.13, finally, Christ himself, himself speaking, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega. Of course, those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And then this little phrase, the beginning and the end. Now, I'm going to leave that for a moment because we need to... Think carefully about what that little word, the end, means. It does not mean end in the sense of end of the road or a dead end. It's something very different from that and very thrilling when we see it. Okay, let's move. There's three things we see here. One, history is not a runaway stagecoach. Have we got my picture I drew? There it is. It took me a long time to paint that picture this week. History is not a runaway stagecoach. I don't know if the image is clear enough, but if you can squint and see the man inside the door of the stagecoach, he looks rather terrified, and he's probably thinking, I wish they would stop so I can get off. But the horses are going mad, and they can't stop. It's a runaway stagecoach. In American Hollywood Westerns, this is a staple stereotype scene, archetype image. It's been used a million times. And here it is again, the, the image of chaos and fear and everything being out of control. 
if we believe scripture, we have to sign up for the idea that history is not a runaway stagecoach, even if it feels like one in the short term. This week, Velma and I <laughs> had a what sure felt like a runaway stagecoach week. In all that pouring rain, we got a fairly significant leak all the way from the top of this, a large third floor house and it, the water got all the way through all four floors and we were sitting in the kitchen and here it started hearing this sound of dripping, dripping water and we looked over and there was a large leak coming right through the ceiling. We don't even yet know the exact path it's taking or where the exact access point on the top of the house and the roof is. But that was how the week began. We've had squirrels up in the, in the roof the other night, I was sitting in bed. There's a big window next to my bed, and I heard this outside my window. I opened the blind, and there is this, looking right in through the window at me, was a raccoon. He was sitting on the fire escape there like he owned the place, just looking at me. I didn't ask his name. Then we had wasps. We were going out the back door. There's, we could see this. You know how they make those nest things on the top inside of the back door? Wasps flying everywhere. And we had to cut it off. And there was vandalism in the neighborhood. Two or three of our neighbors had their cars broken into. Fortunately, it didn't happen to Velma and me personally, but it happened to our neighbors. Tragically, sadly, there were two deaths in the neighborhood. They were both substance abuse-related we had a good friend diagnosed with stage four cancer. It's not a gateway person, but it was a, sh a shock for us. We, it's very advanced. Lynn Musgrove, that Aaron mentioned, has gone to be with the Lord. We're, we're glad she's with the Lord, but it's still sad when you lose someone. The most trying for us was Velma was leaving the house one morning on the way to babysit our grandkids, and it had just rained. And she didn't take into account how slippery the outside steps were, and her feet went right out from under her. She came down very, very, very hard on her back, and she can barely walk now. She's been to the chiropractor and to the, to the hospital, and we're trying to get that sorted out. But she's in considerable pain. This week, for the Perrys, sure felt like a runaway stagecoach. Maybe you had one similar. However... That's the small picture, and we're, look, we're looking this morning to the scripture to reveal to us the big picture. The big picture, if we can have the next slide. That's great, thanks. It's not a runaway stage coach, but in history, in the Bible, we see that it is a, it is a plan, and it has a goal. Ephesians 1.10, a plan, we saw this already, it's worth repeating this verse. A plan. Do you like that idea? I hope you like that idea. That God, we the God we're called to know in the Bible is the God who has a plan. And the plan is for the fullness of time and, and, we, and it is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. People with raccoons in the fire escape. People with leaks, people that fall down and hurt their backs. Christ wanting to draw all that to himself. A moment ago we commented on Revelation twenty-two, thirteen. Christ there says, I am the beginning 
and I am the end. When he says he is the beginning, well, truer words were never spoken. Of course, everything he says is always true. He's the beginning. If you think back on your salvation, if you, if you do know the Lord this morning, and you were to ponder, how did it happen that I came to know him? It likely involved other people in some fashion. But if you keep tracing it back, okay, why did that fellow tell you that that day, years ago, whatever? If you keep tracing the process backwards to its source, it ultimately will take you to Jesus himself. The good work he began in you. The good work who began? The good work he began. He is the beginning. The life that's in us this morning, even if we've had a complicated, crazy week, there's life in us. He put it there. It's him living in us through the Holy Spirit. He is the beginning. So he says in Revelation 22, 13, I am the beginning. Then you get that interesting second half of the sentence. And the end. When we say end, we can mean different things by that. We can use it to mean the end of the road. Belma and I have friends down in the States. Actually, they've gone to be with the Lord now. They're elderly. And at one point, they had had to go live in a nursing home. And I remember them saying, we sort of feel like we've reached the end of the road. And it was a little bit sad when we heard them say that. The end of the road. When Christ says he's the end, that is not, repeat, not, repeat, not the kind of end Jesus is talking about. That's not the kind of end he promises to be. The word there he uses for end, if you go to the original language, it means goal. G-O-A-L. Like goal at, at the end of the soccer field. The goal you kick the football toward. It can mean a destination. It's where we're headed. It's the finish line. The picture we have, the runner running down the track there, and he's just broken through the tape. You can sort of see it in the, in the picture. That was the goal. That was the end in the, in the biblical meaning of end. He's just got to the end, the appointed destination, the finish line. When we get a week... <laughs> A runaway stagecoach week, what do we do? I'm speaking to myself first <laughs> and the rest of us second. When you're in the, the stagecoach looking out the door saying, I wish they'd sh stop and I could get off, there seems to be no rhyme or reason for what's happening. We need to believe the promises above our circumstances. Christ is the beginning and he is the destination. The stagecoach will go through parts of the journey where it stumbles and it lurches from one side of the road to the other where you feel understandably in danger. But if you're in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're also in the stagecoach. You're in him. And he who began a good work in you and in me and in Velma, who's hobbling around still, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He is the destination. He is the goal. 
Our God is the God with a plan. All things together under Christ. The heart of the plan. We can go to the, yeah, great, another one of my recent paintings. God's plan is for the glory of Christ. I'm revisiting an idea here because it's important. The coming of the Magi was part of God fulfilling the promise Jacob spoke over the tribe of Judah and over the king that would come from that tribe, King Jesus. The promise was to him shall be the obedience of the peoples and that is what we're seeing in these Persian astrologers, which is probably what they were. It shows that God's in control of the heavens. Not every king gets his own star. This king did. And it moved. It's very, if you read in Matthew chapter 2, it's very clear. This star, there's all kinds of conjecture. What exactly was it? Well, it was different because it could move. It would, it would visibly move, the wise men said. And when they left Herod's palace to go looking, it says that it went before them. And then it came to rest over the house where the child was. So this is a supernatural event, but it's in the heavens. Heaven and earth are testifying to this new king. All things together under Christ, including the stars, they are under him. Now, it's a sign of fulfillment of the Genesis 49.10 promise. Amen. It's also a pointer of things to come. This is a small version. We don't have the picture now. The, the Magi bowing down with their gold and their frankincense and myrrh is a small picture in advance of the, the nations coming to the New Jerusalem at the end of the age. The Lamb is already enthroned He's alternatively pictured in the book of Revelation, sometimes as seated at the right hand of God, representing his authority. Other times, other visions, he's standing, the lamb standing. In the book of Revelation, standing is always a symbol of triumph and victory. And at the end, during a fight, you say, I wonder who will be left standing. Well, we already know from the book of Revelation, the lamb is left standing. He never gets knocked down. He's the lamb at the center, and then the kings of the earth are going to come to that glorious city and bring in, I take this to mean, the glory of the nations, that phrase, I take that to mean they're distinct, different, diverse cultural riches. They will all have different kinds of worship that will point to the lamb. For the magi, it was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We have um, tenants in our house. We live in a rooming house. And all but one or two of the tenants that have lived there since we came back from England three years ago have been from uh, other nations, especially the Middle East and India and Pakistan. And uh, we love the food they make. 
and the fragrances and the, the aromas and every when, when we come in and one of them is my cooking, I always say, I think I've died and gone to heaven. Just the, the, the curry and the, the spices and everything. It, it's just wonderful. And I said the other night with Amtel, because Velma, Amtel is one of the women that live in the house. Um, she made a, a meal for Velma because Velma was, couldn't get around. And it was this delicious Pakistani kind of a curry stew. And the, the whole house just smelled like this. And I remember saying to Velma, I wonder when the saints come in from Pakistan into that city, what are they going to bring? I said, I know, it's going to be curry. I can see them coming through the gates of the city. Here's our curry, Lord. I hope they keep it warm until I get there. It's a re, that's, that heavenly glorious city is going to be a replay of the coming of the Magi, but on a global scale. Now I want to conclude with something super practical. Here's the question. If we can have the next slide. Which way will I turn my camel. The other morning I was really despondent because of Velma's fall and all that's come out of that. She said, how are you doing? What's wrong? And I said, I'm not doing really well yet because I think I'm mad at God. Couldn't he have stopped you falling on the stairs? Now we know the answer to that. Of course he could have. As long as we live in an imperfect world, he, for redemptive reasons, we don't always understand. He allows things. He sends things our way. There's opportunities where we have to learn to trust him when we're swimming upstream. My heart attack in December, now Velma's injury. And in those moments, we have a decision to make. So did the Magi. Now the only the book of Matthew of the four Gospels mentions the Magi. And Matthew's account never, in fact, mentions that they were riding on camels. So that's one thing that artists and people have supplied. It's not at all unlikely that was a common mode of transport in that part of the world in that time. So let's say they were using camels. The time came, we don't know exactly how long they stayed there in Bethlehem, but they had to leave to return to their own country, probably Persia. So they had a decision to make. What about Herod? God had warned them, don't go back. Yes. But did that present them with a challenge? What exactly, couldn't we go back for a few minutes and whatever? Here's why. I do wonder if the decision which they faithfully did in obedience to God, they didn't go back to Herod, but when returned to their own country, Matthew says, quote, by another road, by another way. The reason that was complicated was this. In the Bible, there's something like five rulers named Herod. They were all part of the same family, and they were all wicked. But the worst of the bunch was the one called Herod the Great. Interesting definition of great. He was called Herod the Great, and he was the Herod that was ruling Judea when Jesus was born. 
This Herod had a bit of a habit. If he had the slightest suspicion of you as one of his so-called subjects, that you were not suitably and sufficiently loyal to him, he would have you put to death. He did it to some of his own biological sons who would have inherited his throne, but he thought they were in the meantime conspiring to get rid of him. It was probably his own, his own paranoia more than anything else. And he had them executed in a very grisly fashion. More than one of his sons. He did the same to at least one, maybe two of his wives. He had a few. I think it's fair to say this guy had some issues. He probably would have had spies no doubt the Magi were thinking, we've heard about this guy. Has he been tailing us, having people keep an eye on us? And if we bypass Jerusalem on our way back to Persia, is he going to know about it? So the moment came, they got on their camels and they, they left Bethlehem. And at some point, they would have got to the a fork in the road or whatever. Well, we've got to the point of no return. It's either we accommodate Herod because we don't want to get in trouble with him or... We honor the other king that we've just met, who's just a young child, but he's going to be Lord of heaven and earth. Which king are we going to go with? The moment would have come if we think of them as riding camels. They had to pull on one rope or the other. I asked Ken Peters, he used to live in Somalia, and he's ridden camels many, many times. And I said, how do you steer them? And he said, usually just a rope harness, the picture shows that, and you just pull it one way or the other. He said, they're very difficult animals to, to ride and to lead, but you get the technique. But it, you pull the rope that shows the animal which way you want to turn. They would have come to the place, all right, gentlemen, we can't put off the decision anymore. If we're going back to Herod, now's the moment. Or if we're heading back to Persia, and we're going to take the risk of trusting God so we can honor the real king, King Jesus. We have to make that decision and reach over, let's say it was left, turned north, east, Persia. They had to pull on that rope. You know, there's nothing very dramatic about pulling on a rope. You just go like this. Nobody that would have seen it would have said, wow. And there are probably things the Lord's asking some of us to do right now in life that are a rope tug on your camel. Not very dramatic outwardly, it's not something the world is going to cheer and give you all kinds of applause. You won't get asked to write a book about it and become famous. It's something probably nobody but you and the Lord really might even know about, but you pull on that rope. You make a decision. Maybe it's something simple and ordinary and everyday, to phone somebody that you know you needed to have phoned and got hold of. Maybe it's a decision to back off. You've been maybe insisting on something in your family or in a relationship and you feel the Lord saying, you know what, you just leave that with me. You back off a little bit. And by pulling on that rope, you're lining up with what God's doing. 
in some ordinary, everyday, unspectacular, unglamorous part of your life, the obedience of the nations comes to Christ. Which way am I going to go? Which king, Herod claims to be king, when the Magi arrived, they said, we're searching for him who is born king of the Jews. They knew more than Herod did about kingship. This kingship that the Magi had come to witness was witnessed by the heavens. This king got his own star. Which king are we going to honor? Here's our homework. Last slide. All things together under Christ. Four things to ponder prayerfully. Where do I feel like I'm on a runaway stage, coach? Maybe I'm not the only one this morning who feels that. Where is it hardest for me to trust the all things together under Christ promises? That's our banner over this. All things together under Christ. That's God's plan. There's promises. We've looked at some of the promises about that. What in that mix is the hardest for me to embrace? Maybe what's it look like when things go wrong? What's my main Herod? Most of us have a Herod of some sort. And we are tempted in our moments of weakness to accommodate that king at the expense of the true king. And where in my life am I facing a camel turn? I need to pull on that rope. Amen.